0: Morning for a morning lesson. Turn in your Bibles to Psalm number 113. Psalm 113. This is the first of six Psalms that would have been chanted by the temple choir whenever the Passover lambs were being killed. And so, as we read this this morning, I want our heart, our, our minds to turn to um, Jesus Christ as our Passover lamb. That will be the main thrust of the message today, but just to, to, to point our minds in that direction. Praise ye the Lord. Praise, O ye servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. From the rising of the sun and to the going down of the same, the Lord's name is to be praised. The Lord is high above all nations and His glory above the heavens. Who is likened to the Lord our God, who dwelleth on high, who humbleth himself to behold the things that are in heaven and in earth? He raiseth up the poor out of the dust, and lifteth the needy out of the dunghill, that he may set him with princes, even with the princes of his people. He maketh the barren woman to keep house, and to be be a joyful mother of children. Praise ye the Lord
1: chapter of saint john now before the feast of the passover when jesus knew that his hour was come that he should depart out of this world unto the father having loved his own which were in the world he loved them unto the end and supper being ended the devil having now put into the heart of judas iscariot simon's son to betray him Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things unto his hand, and that he was come from God, and went to God, he riseth from supper, and laid aside his garments, and took a towel, and girded himself. After that he poured water into a basin, and began to wash the disciples' feet, and to wipe them with the towel wherewith he was girded. Then cometh he to Simon Peter, and Peter saith unto him, Lord, dost thou wash my feet? Jesus answered and said unto him, What I do thou knowest not now, but thou shalt know hereafter. Peter saith unto him, Thou shalt never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. Simon Peter saith unto him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus saith unto him, He that is washed needeth not save to wash his feet but is clean every whit and ye are clean but not all for he knew who should betray him therefore he said ye are not all clean so after he had washed their feet and had taken his garments and was set down again he said said unto them know ye what i have done to you Ye call me master and lord and ye say well for so i am If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, ye also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example, that ye should do as I have done to you. Verily, verily, I say unto you, The servant is not greater than his Lord, neither he that is sent greater than he that sent him. If ye know these things, happy are ye if ye do them. I speak not of you all, I know whom I have chosen but that the scripture may be fulfilled. He that eateth bread with me hath lifted up his heel against me. Now I tell you before it come, that when it is come to pass, ye may believe that I am he. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that receiveth whomsoever I send receiveth me, and he that receiveth me receiveth him that sent me. When Jesus had thus said, he was troubled in spirit, and testified, and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, that one of you shall betray me. Then the disciples looked on one another, doubting of whom he spake. Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved. Simon Peter therefore beckoned to him that he should ask who it should be of whom he spake. He then, lying on Jesus' breast unto him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered It is he it is whom I shall give a sop when I have dipped it. And when he had dipped the sop, he gave it to Judas Iscariot the son of Simon. And after the sop Satan entered into him. Then said Jesus unto him, That thou doest do quickly. Now no man at the table knew for what intent he spake this unto him. For some of them thought because Judas had the bag, that Jesus had said unto him, By those things that we have need of against the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. He then, having received the sop, went immediately out, and it was night. Therefore, when he was going out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in Him. If God be glorified in Him, God shall also glorify Him in, in Himself and shall straightway glorify him. Little children, get a little while, I am with you. Ye shall seek me, and as I said unto the Jews, whither I go ye cannot come. So now I say to you, a new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one for another one to another. Simon Peter said unto him, Lord, whither goest thou? Jesus answered him, whither I go, thou cannot follow me now, but thou shalt follow me afterwards. Peter said unto him, Lord, why cannot I follow thee now? I will lay down my life for thy sake. Jesus answered him, wilt thou lay down thy life for my sake? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, The cock shall not crow till thou hast denied me thrice.
0: Good morning. We too would greet you in the wonderful name of Jesus, our Savior. We really appreciated the opening remarks this morning. And no matter how many times this type of thing transpires, we still have to stand in awe of the Holy Spirit. As he works in the hearts of two different men and brings hearts too close to the same place. As Simon talked there in in John chapter 15 and then ended there talking a little bit about humility. And we're not going to make a lot of remarks about that, but this morning we intend to, if the Holy Spirit wills to start a series, that we'll start here in John chapter 13. And our intention is to work our way through what is known as the Farewell Discourse, which generally is just John 14, 15, 16, and 17, if that's not a term you're familiar with. In my mind, I think John 13 needs to be a part of that. I think as we look to John chapter 13 and some of the things that are displayed here, some of the things that are taught here, it sets the tone for all those other passages. And then we would intend to continue on into chapter 18 and 19 and visit the garden and the crucifixion and conclude then in John chapter 20 with the resurrection. This is a passage that our minds have turned to the last several years. As we've come into spring and we start to think about communions coming up and Good Friday and Easter and just everything that we observe from, really, they've already started here uh, and just passed in January and there's a few more in February, as we observe communions through the spring and then we collectively with believers around the world observe the crucifixion on Good Friday and the resurrection on Easter morning. And what our goal would be as we work through this is to take this in context There's a lot of lessons, as we've heard already this morning, that can be had in John chapter 14, 15, and 16. We don't hear John 17 talked about very much, but it's such a powerful chapter as you read that prayer of Jesus. But what we desire to do is to take this in context with how it is written. As we start this morning in the upper room, John don't really talk about the Last Supper, but it starts with foot washing, and then... John 14 is still taking place in the upper room, and John 15, 16, and 17 happened between the upper room and the Garden of Gethsemane. And so many times we go to those passages, we hear those passages preached from. Many lessons there, but we don't necessarily think about the journey that was taking place. And so that's the desire that we have. And and the title that we've put on this series is a mission masterfully consummated. Consummated is past tense for the word of consummate. And it simply means to bring to a state where nothing is left to be done. And I think as we look at the the ministry and the work that Jesus Christ performed here in this world, the work that brought Him to this world, we look at how it was prophesied in the Old Testament many years before He came. And in fact, I think it's in First Peter that it says that He was foreordained before the foundations of the world to provide our salvation And you start to wrap all that into one package that now is what we know of as salvation. And it is so complete that it could only have been designed by an eternal God. To the point where there is nothing left to do. This mission is... Kind of described in a nutshell, if you will, in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 8 and 10, it says above, when he said, Sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings, and offering for sin thou wouldst not, neither hadst pleasure therein, which are offered by the law. Then said he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, that he may establish the second by the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And when I read that passage there, and you can even start at probably verse 1 there in Hebrews 10 and just read down through several verses, I am just amazed. As we know what all Jesus faced and we know that he had the foreknowledge of what he was to face, and we look at it from a... Humanistic point of view, how willing it's stated here in Hebrews 10 that Jesus was to come and to do that. And I know that in our human intellect, we cannot fully understand that package of Jesus Christ as he was on earth, where he was 100% man, but he was 100% God, and all that that entails.
1: The title that we've put to this individual
0: message today, as we start into this series, is just—we've called this message the Servant Master—and probably to get the full scope of this journey to the to the to the crucifixion and then the resurrection, we would need to start back on on the triumphal entry. And so we want to just briefly and just kind of a bullet point list, go through some events that transpired. And you're all familiar with the account of the triumphal entry, how Jesus came into the city and the crowds were waving palms and throwing their coats in the way and just praising him for who he was. And then as he came into Jerusalem, you're familiar with the cleansing of the temple, how he went in and overturned the tables of the money changers and drove them out. And I had to wonder a little bit what they thought, if how many of them were the same ones that he drove out once already. Then he spent some time in the temple just healing the blind and the lame, like he had so much of his ministry. But on this occasion, maybe worse than others, it stirred the jealousy that was ever present, seemingly in, this, in the hearts of the scribes and the Pharisees. And I did not did not put a lot of details of that account in my notes, but and I, I kind of forget if they if they instigated this. But I know it ended as Jesus rebuked them openly. Then you can remember the, that that night they left the city and went to Bethany, and as they came back the next morning, he cursed the fig, fig tree. We won't go into that story, but then as they came back to the, the temple, the scribes and the Pharisees were probably still a little salty from the, the rebuking that they had received. And as he started to preach, they, they questioned his authority. What authority do you preach in? And so he taught three parables as he confronted the chief priests and Pharisees. The first one was the parable of the two sons. You remember the one the father asked to go work in the vineyard, and he said he wouldn't, and he did. And then the second one said he would, and he didn't. And you can just go back to that account and revisit it if you like. But then the second one was the one of the wicked husbandmen, where a man had a vineyard, and he worked it, and he developed it, and he went to another land, and he he allowed a husbandman to take care of that. And he sent sent some servants. And you can remember that I think the one was beaten and another one was killed and another one was stoned. And so he sent more servants and the same thing happened. And then he sent his son and they murdered him too. And then there was one where a royal invitation went out from a king to invite them to the wedding of his son. And those that received the invitation just had excuse after excuse of why they couldn't attend. And it angered that ruler. And he went out into the highways and the byways and invited whoever would. And it was really interesting to look down through those three parables just back to back and to take them into context of what we're looking at today and how clearly, even though in story form, it was just spelled out. Maybe hindsight's 2020 20 there. But I think it does say that by the time he got to the end, the scribes and Pharisees realized that it was to them that he referred. And Jesus was just simply teaching them that the kingdom of God would be taken away from them who had always been the chosen people and given to those who would believe. Then Jesus delivered a discourse on unbelief prophesied on calamities that were yet to come, another discourse on discerning the signs of coming events. He taught two parables, teaching us to be watching and waiting, teaching us to be faithful with what God's given us. And finally, he offered another discourse, this one on Judgment Day. And if you look at this list of things, all these things are things that would have been hard to do. Yeah, he had his close group of believers with him, but standing in the face of opposition. I had to think about that a little bit. and It had been very much like standing alone in face of a crowd that every one of you, every one of them opposed you, but yet willing to stand boldly for truth. And you just think about that. And the The tension and the wear on your emotions and your physical body. And I think Jesus experienced that. That was part of his humanity. I think that could fall under the verse that says he was tempted in all points like as we were. But another layer of complexity to that is Jesus had foreknowledge of things that were happening that weren't in his presence. So also at the same time that Jesus is performing hard things, he knows That in the background, Judas is consorting with the chief priest to betray him. And he stands for truth. We kind of wanted to run down through that just quickly, just to bring a light the change that occurs as they come into this upper room. I think to start at the triumphal entry would be a much broader scope. It would be a much fuller picture. Of the journey to the cross, but in John, in John 13, things change from where Jesus is cleansing, so to speak. If, if you if you if you do a comparison here to the to the um, feast of unleavened bread, and I haven't I haven't completely studied through that, but I've kind of grazed through some of it, and I think that you can take this week and you can you can just line it up with those events that came into Passover. And so, as Jesus was doing some of this cleaning and cleansing that the Jews would have done every day, in, or not every day, but every year in their houses as they prepared for the Feast of Unleavened Bread, as he comes into the upper room, the feelings change, and this becomes very intimate. And as we go forward through the chapters that we desire to go through, you'll see that he's still preparing. He's still operating under the full foreknowledge of the things that are to transpire in the next 24 hours. But yet from this point in the upper room until the angry mob catches him in Gethsemane, it's an intimate moment. And that's what we desire to work through today. So we want to look a little closer at the the feeling or the atmosphere, if you will, In this upper room as they came together, I don't think there's anywhere in Scripture that talks about this, but as we think about events like Passover would have been to where culturally these men that followed Jesus would have experienced that year after year. And this was one of the feasts that was required that all Jewish males attended every year. And so there would have been deep meaning seated in Passover. There would have been also, I think, some anticipation as I had to think a little bit about conference. I'm sure there was Jews in that day that didn't really like crowds. And they maybe went out of a sense of duty, but I almost wonder if the biggest part of the crowd didn't anticipate that connection with friends and family that they didn't get to see but that one time a year that they went to Passover. And so I think the the whole group would have came into this this experience in the upper room, with some anticipation and some desire. If you look into at Luke twenty-two, as they come into the upper room for the last supper, verse in, in verse fifteen, Jesus speaking, and he sa- says, and he said unto them, with desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Jesus knew that this was his last. Passover, and so he came into this with even greater desire and anticipation to share this time with his closest followers. And as you think about gatherings like that that have a an obvious leader, and whenever a leader is excited about something and anticipating something, you've probably seen this in in your businesses, or or you can you can apply that how you will how if that vision and that anticipation is articulated, it just seeps out into the whole group. And so I think that through that desire and anticipation that Jesus felt, it just heightened this a notch. I think that those disciples came to the upper room and they were anticipating this even a little more than they ever had Passover before. And Jesus had been telling them almost his whole ministry that he would go away, but I don't think they got it. I don't know that they had a clue that this was going to be the last one. In fact, I think when you get to the end of John 13, that's very apparent. But yet somehow they came, and I think that the anticipation and the desire and the excitement that was in that room was well beyond the level that they would have normally experienced at Passover. An example of, of, of Jesus' foreknowledge that he would... He would leave in this manner if you go back into um, John 3. And when you do a comparison to the four Gospels, very little, I think, had happened before this meeting with Nicodemus. There was only a few events. His baptism, I think at least five of the disciples had been called... um, The the water turned to wine. His first miracle had happened. And it seems like there's maybe just one or two other events that aren't coming to mind. But here as Jesus visits with Nicodemus in John 3, starting in the 14th verse, it says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life for god sent not his son into the world to condemn the world but that the world through him might be saved so very 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 early in his ministry jesus for had had talked about that one there was a day that he would be taken from this world and he would he would be lifted up I think back a little farther, and here again, it's just a complication of our limited minds. Being able to comprehend that God and man in one package, of wondering when Jesus really received that foreknowledge. To us in our human minds, it seems a very heavy thing to carry for a young child. But if you look back to the account where Jesus was in the temple at 12 years old, and he said, Wish ye not that I be about my father's business? I think at that time he had some inkling, at least, of what his purpose was on this earth. This mission, this express duty that he he had came for. It really gets to be complex. I'm not going to spend a lot of time with it, but just as you think back through that, and as he came from heaven, I feel fully that he knew about it there. But did he know about it as a baby? It's one of the things of God that, that we can wonder about and, and maybe someday we'll know if it really even matters. So as we start here in John chapter 13, we're going to start here in verse 1. We're going to separate this verse a little bit. It says, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the father and this is the foreknowledge that we've been talking about this is the the very thing in jesus's heart that had heightened his desire to eat of this passover with those that he loved and if we continue on here it says having loved his own which were in the world he loved them unto the end and we want to talk about that that part a little bit, and I hope that we're it don't seem like we're splitting hairs here. Um But it seems like usually in, in the New Testament, as we look at the love of God or the love of Jesus, if you go to the Greek, that the word that's used to to describe that love is agape. That's the unconditional, eternal love of the Father. But if you look at the Greek in this in this verse The word that's used is agapeo. So we have the agape love, which is the love of God. We're familiar with phileo, which is the love that we feel for a close friend or relationship. This agapeo love is used quite a bit in the New Testament, but it's the love that would describe the love that you have brother to brother or sister to sister. Agapeo love would be closely related to phileo, but it's wider encompassing. Phileo love is is more just a love of the heart. It's an emotion where the agapeo love would also encompass the mind where you love out of a moral sense. And so I go into that a little bit, not to be tedious, but if I can go out on a, a limb here maybe. If you're a better a better linguist than I am, you can you can maybe inform me later if I'm wrong here, but I think that the significance of this is I don't think Jesus was capable of not having agape love for these men that unconditional eternal love without end, but I think that love came together with the emotional. Phileo, love that you feel for a friend. And I go into that just because I think that that this was a love that Jesus needed to model to his followers, but also I think that that even heightened this sense of of this feeling, this atmosphere in the air, because it was so close. This was not just a, a, a normal church Sunday where you're with some people you know pretty well and you're with some people you hardly know at all. This was a close, close group. Almost at an emotional high, you might say. But the reason I say that this is a love that that Jesus needed to model, and we'll go into this a little bit more later, but this is the same love that's in verse 34. We won't get to there today, but you're familiar with it where he says, A new commandment I give unto you that you love one another. It's the same love that you see in Matthew twenty two, thirty-nine. We're going to stick to the New Testament here because we're following the Greek where it says it talks about the, the commandment to love your neighbor as yourself. It's also the same Greek word that's used in Matthew five and Luke six, where we're commanded to love our enemies and do, do good to those that hate you. This agapeo love is the essence of what we are called to as Christians, as followers of Christ. As we work through this passage, and we will soon be into the account of foot washing here, I don't want you to get the impression that I'm trying to spiritualize this passage. I think there's great spiritual meaning here. There's a lot of lessons that's taught in this passage. That doesn't discount the practice of it, and I hope to get to that too. And maybe we can tie those two together. Along with that, that agapeo love that is mo- modeled here, I think is has a close correlation to the things that Jesus is trying to teach in this chapter. So we move on to John 13, 2. And supper being ended, the devil having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. And I'm not going to necessarily address this verse in particular, but we want to do a little bit of character study on Judas. We can be pretty hard on Judas. We don't know the intents of Judas's heart for sure. Just about anything you find in scripture can lead you to believe that that might be justified. But eternally, God is the judge. But one thing I find. Interesting, as we think about Judas, well, we'll back up a little bit here. I'm going to get ahead of myself. Judas, just like any other Jewish boy, would have been educated in the synagogue. He would have learned about the Messiah from the time he was a young young lad. And there's very little said about him. And we're just kind of going to go through some bullet points here. We don't want to get too lengthy with this. But some some character traits that we see of Judas in the times that he's mentions mentioned in, Mark, in, in matthew twenty six fourteen and fifteen he displays i 'm going to probably say this wrong uh, avariciousness, and I use that word simply because it, it kind of encompasses a little more than just saying he was greedy uh, the, this avariciousness is, is is a a covetousness that's motivated by an intense consuming greed, a desire for for personal gain, personal possessions, would be some things that's tied to that word. If you go on to John 12, 5, and 6, you'll see that Judas displayed hypocrisy. In Mark 14, 10, and in Luke 22, 47, and 48, you see treachery modeled. And then if you come back and take another second look at John twelve six, you see dishonesty. That, that passage in John 12 is where Mary is anointing the feet of Jesus with the, the precious ointment, and he's, he questions why this ointment wasn't sent sold and the money given to the poor. But then it goes on in, in verse 6 to say that Judas didn't really care about the poor. He was more interested in the money and that's very much my own words but the essence of what's in that verse almost every reference that we see in the scripture to judas refers to him either as a traitor or the one who betray, the one who betrayed on the whole as we look into judas's character and the, and what we see in scripture you could probably say that judas had an unregenerate heart a takeaway that that i had from that Kind of a point of self examination for us, because I think there's a little there there is a place where each one of us can find a little bit of Judas in our heart as then and so the question that came to my mind as I thought about that as I looked at my life a little bit is am I living a transformed life and that's something that was encompassed a little bit in the opening this morning. Uh, if you go to, to the Sermon on the Mount, as as Simon talked about the, the vines and the fruit and and <coughs> pruning in order to bear more fruit. In the Sermon on the Mount, I think it's in Matthew chapter 7, it says, By their fruits ye shall know them. And we don't want to, to sound overly judgmental, but we live in a land where there is so many professing Christians, but the more you get to know them, the fruits that you see don't announce that. And I think that there's some markers like that given in Scripture where we have the ability to be discerning. We don't want to be condemning, but we have to discern. As we get to the some of the last references of Judas in the Gospels, we know that Judas did feel remorse. And we could go a couple different directions with that. Again, we're not the judge But we don't know what motivated that remorse. I think we'll just leave it at that. Another thought that I had and that is a little bit more aligned with what this verse has to say about the devil having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot Simon's son to betray him is when you look into Luke's gospel, this this is taking place in John 13 right after supper had ended. And in Luke's gospel, as they as they come out of the of the of the Last Supper, the an argument kind of ensues there amongst the the disciples of who would be the greatest in heaven. And as you look through that and you and you, you just consider Judas's character and you you start to look inwardly This argument is ensuing over who would be the greatest, and and we don't know what what was motivating Judas' heart, but the thought come across my mind is this argument, what motivated Judas to try to push Jesus' hand to show the world that he was the Messiah. Maybe Judas felt like he could have a part in bringing that about, and that would elevate him to some status that he desired, because I think one thing that is consistent through every reference of Judas is that he had a problem with greed. Let's move on to verse three. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand and that he was come from God and went to God. As we as we think a little bit about that argument that we just talked about and in, and in, that's in Luke's gospel in relation to what's said in this verse, when you look into different theological expository writings or messages on John 13 there's many that would would that would say that that argument was the whole reason for the lesson of foot washing and i don't know that that i would get really hung up with that i think that that if when you, when we get to 13 to 17 that um i don't know that i would say it was the reason that it wouldn't have happened without it but i think it did maybe have some bearing on some things that were said And that's, that's really all I have, I want, I wanted to bring out about that argument. I don't want to, I don't want to make any bigger deal of it. Simply that, that you can see in some of the remarks how I think that that did have some bearing on this, this experience. Verse four and five, he riseth from supper and laid aside his garments and took a towel and girded himself. After that he poureth water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel wherewith he was girded. So we've come to foot washing. And I think you see in these verses the, a divine condescension as well, as God who's just in, in verse 3 <clears throat> took a stance that, that he knew he was from the Father. And he always knew that. And he was confident in his preeminence, but he condescended to the place of a servant. Took on the task of the, and not just a servant, but the, probably one of the lowest servants that would have culturally done that. And we're familiar with that. And we're not going to really talk about the cultural practice of, of, of foot washing. But I do want to turn back to Philippians 2, and we're going to try to explain. We're going to try to expand on this example that Jesus had here a little bit. And we're going to start reading at verse 5. It says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. Do all things without murmurings and disputings, that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world. Holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. Yea, and if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with you all. For the same cause also do ye joy and rejoice with me. Really, there's some parallels that could be made here in Philippians 2 that would go just about all the way through, I think, what we're going to get to today. But what we want to bring out in this passage at this point is that as followers of Jesus Christ, we're called to be Christ-like. And so this humility that Jesus displays in this act of foot-washing is very much the mind of Christ. And that's something that's pretty hard for us a lot of times to to bring ourselves down lower when so much of our society and our just a lot of things that we do cause us to want to elevate ourselves. We want to succeed. We want to, to go beyond. And, and so to do that in the society that we live in, it's almost expected that you pr- promote yourself in some way. It's almost, it, it, well, I wouldn't say almost. It is uncultu- and uncultural for us as Americans in this time, to be humble. So if we drop on to to twelve thir- to, to verse 12 and 13, we're not going to reread, but it, it calls us to do the Lord's work. It calls us to service. To work out our own salvation with godly fear by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And then 14 through 18... We see of being called out as lights in the world to shine as lights in the world in a crooked and perverse nation. This working in the capacity that God has called you, shining as lights in the place where you have, where you live, the place where you work, the the society that you live in, is is modeling this agapeo love that Jesus was showing his disciples in John thirteen, and as we continue on through that, we 're not going to really dive into these verses, but the underlying tone here is that in order to have this this compassion that you must have to serve your fellow man, you must first humble yourself and i and, and I think what paul's preaching here in this letter Though the the text is different and and it's, it's not something that maybe I would typically have used together, I, what what Paul is trying to teach to the Philippians is the same thing. I think that Christ is modeling here in the upper room. Some time ago, I I, I listened to a a message from John MacArthur, and he was actually preaching on a portion of this chapter. And he put it this way, your ability to love is directly proportionate to your ability to humble yourself. Love in its purest form is completely unselfish. It is indifferent to personal gain. It has no concern for personal satisfaction or fulfillment. And nothing in that description of love, this agapeo love that Jesus calls us to, describes where we're at in society here in this day and age. But I find that very intriguing, and it fits very well in this passage, that our ability to love is directly proportionate to our ability to humble ourselves. So as we've just got done talking about Judas, I would interject here that I think Judas was the opposite of this. As we see that Judas was more motivated with by greed and self-interest, I don't think that Judas had the ability to humble himself, and I had to wonder too. And here again, I'm, I'm sharing some thoughts here that that I, you don't need to quote me on. I, it's just thoughts that have came as I studied through this and possibilities. I had to wonder if maybe this wasn't the moment that elevated Judas's desire to betray, as he seen Jesus humble himself to that abase of a state. And and he just, in his intellect, said, this isn't going where I thought it was. And so he jumped camps. And there again, it's just, just amusing that I share. We'll start reading again here in verse 6. Then cometh he to Simon Peter, and Peter said unto him, Lord, dost thou wash my feet? Jesus answered and said unto him, What I do thou knowest not now, but thou shalt know hereafter. Peter saith unto him, Thou shalt never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. Simon Peter saith unto him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus saith to him, He that is washed needeth not to save, needeth not save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit, and ye are clean, but not all. So we want to look a little bit at Peter's character, and we're not going to go real deep into this. But I think that you can see in Peter and just what you know of Peter from the Gospels is that Peter was impetuous. He was probably one driven by by passion and emotion. And many times an emotional driven person, they're, they're really hard after one thing, but yet something else pops up and they divert. And I think you can see that in Peter's life as he followed Jesus. And sometimes it got him into trouble. And I think that you, that you can see some of this um, emotional-driven, maybe erratic behavior here in, in, in verse 6. I have to wonder, as, as Peter said, Lord, dost thou wash my feet? If that wasn't something that had been on the mind of every disciple prior to him. But Peter was the one that spoke up. And, and in essence, questioned the Lord's authority. I think, though, that Jesus recognized the value that you have when you take somebody that is driven by passion and can divert that passion and channel it into one vision. Matthew 16:15 to 19 says, He saith unto him, But whom saith ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Here again, Peter's boldness to be the first to speak up. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto them, that Thou art Peter. And upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind in earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then just a few verses later, and I think Matthew here in, in, in chapter 16, it jumps to a different occasion. It's not like it was all at the same setting. But in verse 23, he's, it says, But he turned and said unto Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan. Thou art an offense unto me, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. And it's just further example of the impetuous emotional, erratic swings of Peter. But you can read on in, in, in Luke's Gospel, and Satan even recognized the power that Jesus had to divert Peter and the strength that, the, that there would be for them. In Luke, Luke twenty two thirty one, it's Jesus speaking again, but He says, And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not and when thou art converted strengthen thy brethren and if you if you look at that verse in the ESV that that word converted is is translated into when thou turn again and i think jesus was referring to even at that point the which that would have been probably close to the upper room here i guess the um this this would have been referring to Jesus, to Peter's betrayal, and that when when he repented of that, when he turned again, that he would strengthen his brethren. And I think that that we see that we see that response of Peter in Acts as we get to the day of Pentecost, and then they go on through Acts. That erratic decision-making, that, that swinging of emotion that Peter displayed all through the Gospels just disappears. And Peter became that unmovable rock that was vital to the establishment of the church. Again, and as, as we continue here in, in John chapter 13 and verse 8, we still see some of that impetuous nature of, uh, of Peter as he says, Thou shalt never wash my feet. And in the Greek, that there would be a double negative in that phrase, and where in English that's not proper and supposedly cancels itself out and all that, in Greek, it made it more emphatic. It was like doubling down and, and, and really meaning it. But Jesus responds with, if I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. And then G- Peter follows there in, in verse 9 with just that erraticness, where he's, all the way over to the left, where he says never, and he swings clear to the right and says, "Not my feet only, but also my hands and my head." And in some ways, there I think there's some. There's some. Um, I think you could go two ways with this, but I think really it's both. There was some lack of foresight in, in Peter here, as he confronted the Lord Jesus Christ, as he confronted the one that he had identified. Earlier in Jesus' ministry, as, as being master and lord, but wasn't willing to follow him through this act of foot washing without being convinced. But yet there was another side of Peter, I think, that said, "If that's what it takes, Lord, I'm all in." And we see that again in in the end of the chapter when Peter is is um, told that he will deny that he can't follow. He says, I'm willing to lay down my life for thy sake. We continue on here in verse 10. It says, He that is washed needeth not save to wash his feet. In that verse, if you look to the Greek, the word washed and "wash" in English, that's just past and present tense. But the words that's used in the Greek there, washed, would refer to submerging yourself and and, and essentially taking a bath where the the word that they use for wash is just getting wet partially, like washing your hands or in this case washing your feet, and we don't have record anywhere that the that the disciples received baptism, but I think here maybe I'm going out on a limb again i I hope not, but we see in John chapter four that Jesus taught baptism and and the disciples performed it. And then as we go into Acts and the church starts to come out on that, that day of Pentecost, their their message was repent and be baptized, every one of you. And so I think as we think that through logically, I think it should just go without saying that, that the disciples had been baptized. And so I, I think what's being conveyed here by Jesus is that, and I, and I, I think that it still brings a, a spiritual cleansing aspect to the foot-washing service where he said, you've already been cleansed, you've been baptized, but yet you have this place in your heart that we need to attend to again. And where my thoughts went with that is I've often wondered why in our, in our brethren format of, uh, of communion, why we don't wash feet after services. But when you look at it from that perspective, it fits so well with self-examination. I don't think any one of us have ever have not had a self-examination where we identify sins in our life. And that's not necessarily a reason to leave the table. But yet, if our heart is in the right place and we're focused on what Jesus is teaching here in foot washing, I think there's still cleansing in it an easing of conscience maybe. So we continue on in verse 11. It says, For he knew who should betray him. Therefore said he, Ye are not all clean. And I think this just speaks again to where there was 11 believers. I don't know if there was more than the disciples in that room or not. You can look to where some would believe there was maybe even up to 150 on that. I don't think it matters. I'm just going to stick with the disciples for this cause. I think that that, that Jesus knew there were... well. You don't have to think. You know Jesus knew. We're, we're kind of supposing that there was 11 believers in that room, but one unregenerate heart. And we've heard testimony before, and this I think this can come very close to home. We've heard testimony from brethren and sisters who have sat in these very rows, whether it's in this meeting house or another, and maybe for many years, and they looked the part and they dressed the part and they acted the part but all of a sudden they came face-to-face with the reality that they did not ever experience transformation. And I, I, I've often wondered that when I've had that thought, if that's even something that is possible to identify in yourself until you come to that face-to-face moment where it's just so black and white. But if I can do a side note here, One thing that would be on my heart here is that if you find yourself in that state this morning, I want to call you out of it. Because no matter when salvation is gained, there's no shame in it. You don't have to feel ashamed because someone knows. Rather, we should have, we should glory with you instead of looking down. Ye are clean, but not all and i think that that's something that as believers we have to we do have to recognize we don't have to dwell on it but we have to be open to the fact that there are those among us that need us and and for multiple reasons i think that we're willing to assist in and and financing and and you can go to a whole lot of different areas but we hold back somehow if the questions get too hard. Or maybe if you're in that position, we hold back when it comes to admitting that we do need help. And that goes into a multiple facets of our life as well. We're going to move pretty quickly here through the next few verses. In fact, I think we'll just read through 12 to 17. We've got a few remarks for each one, but they're fairly brief. So after he had washed their feet and had taken his garments and was set down again, he said unto them, Know ye what I have done to you? Ye call me Master and Lord, and ye say, Well, for so I am. If I then your Lord and Master have washed your feet, ye also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that ye should do as I have done to you. Verily, verily, I say unto you, The servant is not greater than his Lord, neither he that is sent greater than he that sent him. If ye know these things, happy are ye if ye do them. Verse 12, that question, know ye not what I have done to you? Back in verse 7, he, he, he states to Peter, What I do thou knowest not, but thou shalt know hereafter. And I think we can read that verse and, and, and maybe kick that down the road past the resurrection. Peter finds that out some other time. But I think that maybe Jesus was referring to this, this point in time. Let's finish what we're doing here, Peter, and we'll talk about it. Verse 13, he again, this wasn't for Jesus, it was for his followers, acknowledges who he is and proclaims again his preeminence. And I think that this this can kind of seem redundant to us as we read it, but I think it was necessary as Jesus knew that what was about to transpire in the next 24 hours to establish firmly in the minds of the disciples that he was the son of God so that he could uh, he could address any doubt or question that may be in their mind as he was crucified that that it could be any different because I think you see some of that continuing on through the the chapters that will come verse 14 if I then your Lord and master have washed your feet ye also ought to wash one another's feet. Here again, I think there's double meaning in this verse that we can take away and it's not wrong. Um, here again, and this this can go back to that verse in Philippians 2, I think this is a call to humble service. It's a call for us to lower ourselves away from the desires of our flesh, the desires of our heart, and to look more keenly at the needs of others and join Jesus Christ in what he modeled here in this chapter but not only in this chapter, but his entire ministry as he humbled himself to serve. There's a verse in Matthew that would be, I think it, it, it takes place in the upper room too, if I remember right, where um, he states that he came not to be, to be ministered unto, but to minister. He didn't come to receive the, the dignity and the respect and the, the elevation of, a, of the king. But He came to serve. And in order to serve, we have to humble ourselves. Verse 15, For I have given you example that ye should do as I have done to you. Again, a call to be Christ-like. And verse 16 and 17, really it's more, more pertains to 17, Happy are ye if ye do them. I think that in this experience of, of, of humbling ourselves that we might love greater, is the is, is, is the path to experiencing the fullness of joy. Just the happiness that, that, that we have in, in serving the Lord. And I think those of you that are serving the Lord, you have testimony of that. And I think it just gets greater and greater. That would be my testimony. If you're young in the Lord, or if you've walked with Him for a long time, the more you draw close to Jesus, the more you serve Him, the more you avail yourself to the Holy Spirit the more that fullness just continues to creep up. The closer that we feel, the connection gets greater. It's a little bit of, we've talked about it here before, that spiraling journey that as we draw close to God and He draws close to us and we draw closer, and it's that spiraling, ongoing sanctification that we experience until we're called home. Other translations would replace that happiness with blessed. And I can go either way. I'm not sold one way or the other. I think the happiness and the fullness of joy is a, is a great thing. But in that growing closer to Christ and in that experience of that fullness of joy, we experience blessing. And all of us, our testimony may be different of how we felt that. But we experience the working of the Lord in our life and the directing of the Holy Spirit. And And even though it's challenging sometimes, even though it takes of our time, maybe it takes of our finances, maybe we give up one thing in order to give to, to, give to the cause of the kingdom. And I think we should. All too often, I know in our lives, that, that balance is skewed. But when we give up of ourselves, when we humble ourselves to love better and serve God greater that He might be glorified, I don't think that you can ever say there wasn't blessing. So we want to talk very quickly and just address the foot washing service. And we're going to have to move pretty quick here. We don't have a lot, but I, I as I started to work for, on this message, I wondered, we hear about this, this foot washing at every communion service. And I wondered if it would be redundant to you to hear about it on a regular Sunday, but yet, as i have I've not preached foot washing very much, but that 20 minutes that you have to talk about foot washing don't feel like that you get through very much, and I think there's some value and 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 hopefully you you do this sometimes as we come into the communion season to maybe if you only pick one part and just do a deep dive into what the Scriptures say about it. It's such a tremendous blessing when you come around the table. And a lot of times as we, we're washing feet and there is preaching, there's a lot of commotion and there's a lot of disturbance. Some places don't preach during during the actual foot washing part anymore. And sometimes you, you're watching and there's things that maybe strike you as humorous and, and it just it pulls your attention away from the teaching. And I want to urge you to realize that that even in all that commotion, there's some solemnity in what that service means. And though it's easy to be distracted, to, to, to to try to observe that, the first thing that I think that we'll find in that service is that it's an outward manifestation of what the Lord Jesus Christ is teaching us here spiritually. And I think the way our human minds work, sometimes we need that outward manifestation to reconnect and to just reabsorb and, and, and to, to just regain focus on, on what is being taught here and the joy that we experience. And so one thing that, that I want to, to think about here, at, at maybe the next, next communion service you go to, as you kneel down to wash a brother or a sister's feet. And you just focus on that humbling of yourself and serving. Them. Though that may be as only an emblem. I think that that what that's saying is that you're outwardly making a commitment to humble humble yourself and serve those of God's people. I don't limit that to those that are at the table. But I think if we take this message that Jesus had for us in the first part of of John chapter 13, we have to go there. We have to see that as commitment to our brother, to our sister. So as you kneel there before that, that brother or sister, maybe you're at a point in your life where that's hard to do. Maybe you're at a point where you're young and and you haven't done it very much and it feels awkward and you wonder if you're doing it right and and what are you going to say when it's over? And I just urge you to put those things from your mind and as you kneel down and whether you're washing or you're drying, pray for that brother or sister. Take a moment to lay aside those things that are are focusing inwardly. Maybe it's the pain, maybe it's the awkwardness, and, and elevate that brother or sister in prayer. Another thing I had to think as we think about humbling ourselves, being directly proportionate to the ability to love, we would often more commonly speak our love to our brother or sister when we pass the salutation. But I want to urge you as you get up from from washing or drying that brother or sister's feet to say, I love you and mean it. Let it, let it connect with your eyes. And I think in, in observance of all of that, The Lord can help us grow in that agapeo love that he modeled for us in this chapter that we should have for one another. And as that grows for one another, I think it overflows into the community. Some of us are challenged with outreach. I know I am. Culturally, it's it's not what we were raised with. And trying to to have that discernment for when it's constructive to speak and when you need to just bite your tongue. But I think sometimes we need to develop that love between each other in order for it to be able to extend out. Just as I think that there's commitment as you perform this, I think there's takeaway that you can take from this, the table as we gather together in communion and you can take with you when you go and that is the um losing my train of thought the 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 reassurance of the of the network of support that we have as as that older brother or sister that just shakes all the way down but they wouldn't miss it for the world washes your feet And it doesn't have to be a particular face or time. But I think that's a picture that you can take out of these doors. And when the rough times of life come, if you can pull that back up, it's just a tremendous reminder of not just this brotherhood, but the believers in this world that are willing to reach out and lift up the hands that hang down. Maybe it's a listening ear. Maybe it's a helping hand. Maybe it's a few dollars. It doesn't matter. There's tremendous commitment in this humbling to love greater and to serve better. And I just want to stress on that that if we can partake of this in its purest form, and we can bring to mind the essence of what Jesus taught, the memory of this is just. It can carry us through. I may have already stated in the beginning the reason we came to John 13 instead of starting at 14 is I just feel that what we've started through today carries the very essence of what Jesus portrays through this entire passage that's labeled the Farewell Discourse. I think that you could say as Jesus comes into this room where there's great anticipation and there's great love, that from here clear through the resurrection is just a a crashing crescendo of a mission masterfully consummated. A crescendo to a work that was begun by the Lord Jesus Christ that continues on. And it continues on through eternity and it will never cease till all the ransomed church of God are saved to sin no more.